Hello, and welcome to Anything But Traditional. I'm your host, Tamar Bensvi, and I'm so happy that you are here today to listen in on this episode. I was very excited about this episode because when we live our everyday lives, we meet people from all different walks of life, and we get to know different people, and, you know, maybe that it's the cashier, maybe it's the chef, or maybe it's the waitress, or maybe it's, I don't know, there's so many different people. The gas attendant, I don't know. There's so many different types of people that you meet in your everyday life. And I think sometimes we have to really realize that these people aren't just working for us. That these people aren't just, you know, their jobs. There's so much more than that. And Shmuel Katz is exactly that type of person. He runs Auto King in Beit Shemesh across from Big and you know a lot of people go in there and they are like okay he's the car mechanic but over the years you know Gideon and I have really sat with him and learned so much about his life story so much of who he is what makes him who he is um you know and here we really learn so much about that we go into depth about him losing his mother at the age of eight, um, which is something I know a bit too well, as I lost my father when I was eight years old. We talk about making Aliyah with kids that are older. We talk about his career trajectory, his Aliyah trajectory. You know, how this all happened and how his life all kind of came together over the years. It's a really fascinating story about someone that Maybe you haven't spent enough time with. Maybe you haven't heard all their, you know, life stories, but you think of them as just a person with a job. But uh, I'm grateful that I've gotten the opportunity to really get to know Shmuel Katz, get to know his uh, life a bit more, and that I'm able to present it to you today. So tune into this episode, listen in, and... Think about those people in our lives that are workers, but really live life in a way that maybe we wouldn't expect if we just viewed them as their job. I'm sure there's someone that you can think of. Maybe today or tomorrow, sometime this week or next month or whatever. Maybe tune into who they are a little bit more. You never know what, uh, what may come out of it. Hello, everybody. How are you guys? Um, we are in the studio today with my car mechanic, Shmuel. Whenever we leave you, we're always like, he's such an interesting guy. He's not just like a car mechanic, like only in Ramapi, only in Beit Shemesh. Will you have a car mechanic that's like, that you learn Torah from, that you talk to him about what it means to be a Kohen, what it means to like, I don't know, all these crazy, like, you met all these Rebbeim in your life, and you've shown me pictures of all of that, and when I thought about who I needed to have on the podcast, I'm like, okay, we're going to have Shmuel on, because everyone knows him as Auto King, but you're so much more than just Auto King. You're a Kohen, you do a lot of, uh, I don't even know, your life has been 
<laughs> really anything but traditional, even though when you sent me your bio, I was like, your bio is so traditional sounding, but you're not really so traditional. So um, I'm very excited to have you on. You did come on before Hello Fold. So uh, shout out to you. <laughs> um, oh, I came on before Hello Fold. All right. I win. <laughs> you can leave that on. Hillel and uh, Shmuel are neighbors, so yeah, Hillel, we're waiting for you to come on. We learned together. Yeah, well, that was another thing that I've learned about you. Um, as some people know that are listening to this podcast, I've spent a lot of time at the car mechanic over the past four years, and so I've learned a lot about Shmuel, which is why I think you know having him on was a, a necessity. Um, but yeah, Shmuel has this tradition that he learns with Hillefold about an hour before, 40 minutes before Shul on Friday? 40, 45 minutes or 35 minutes before Mincha. Every Friday, uh, I have a group that comes. It started like eight years ago. I have a friend, Arye Deverick, uh, who's an Ole from Toronto. And uh, he wanted to learn about being a Kohen. So we learned halachot of being a Kohen. And we figured that hour before Mincha, when both of us were ready and our wives were doing different things, he came to my house, we were learning, and then we started doing Hilchot Shabbat, and we started doing Mishnayot, and, and then COVID came, and didn't feel comfortable coming into my house, so we did it outside of my driveway, and while we were outside, Rachel Hill's wife wandered by one day and said, hey, what's going on? I'd like to come learn with you guys. So she came to learn with us, and then Hillel came to learn with us. And now we can get anywhere from four to eight people who come. And uh, we've done Derech HaChaim by the Ramchal. We've done Mishnayot. Now we're doing weekly with you of the Haftorah. We feel that not enough people know what the story is, what the connection to the Parsh is. Uh, so I review the Haftorah. There might be alcoholic beverages in the area. I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> but from time to time, we might have a lachaim as well. Uh, and we call it limud lachaim right before Shabbos. It's a great way to en enter into Shabbos. Wow. Yeah. So I think it's also really impressive. Like, you know, if you go to a car mechanic in the States, you're, they're not going to be as stark as you are, you know? Like, they're going to be like this guy who probably knows nothing about Judaism and you're like, but when you go to you, it's like a whole Torah lesson. So it's uh, definitely unique. I've had car mechanics in New York from yeah. guys, wonderful people. Great experience. Yeah, 100%. Wow. There was a guy, Mike, who's now in Detroit, then in Farakaway. Uh, there's guys um, uh, who I use in the five towns. I can't remember his name now. It's only been 17 years since I've been there. Uh, but there, there's certainly from people, you know, you go to Brooklyn, there's guys. But here, it's a little bit more acceptable. Right. In Israel, it's not the same kind of thing. You have from garbage men. You have from everything because we're all Jews here. So, you know, okay, there are Arabs also, but, you know, in Beit Jemish, there's really no Arabs living here. Yeah. So in Beit Shemesh, your gardener is a Jew and your plumber is a Jew and your garbage man is, they're all Jewish and right. they'll come with payas and sometimes they'll share with you a Dvar Torah and I'll pick up a hitchhiker uh, going somewhere and we'll talk about the parasha because that's where we are. Right. That's one of the great things about being here. Great, 100%. 100%. I mean, I think it's also um, not just that you'll learn Torah, but especially since October 7th, a lot of people don't want to use Arab labor. But even before October 7th, a lot of people did not want to use Arab labor. We have no Arab laborers in our shop since before even I came in. I've owned the place since 2016. 
We've never had Arab laborers in our yeah, show. Yeah, and I think that, like, it's, I mean, I I feel like some people listening to this might be like, oh, wow, that's so racist or whatever. But in Israel, it's a very practical thing. In Israel, it's like, you know, you want a Jewish labor. A, you want to support business of other Jews, but also, like, is really scary, you know, and you don't know what's going to happen. And even if it's an Israeli Arab, there's been many, many stories of Israeli Arabs, you know, shooting or using knives or anything. And it's not what we'd want. So um, that's what we were worried about. That's why we haven't had it, because Mahmoud could get a call. Then Ahmed was arrested by the police and he'll grab a ball peen hammer and start attacking people. And, and we just didn't need it. Right. No, 100%. I mean, I have to say that I've tried different experiences with different car mechanics and um, Giddy and I have failed every single time that we've tried to use anyone else except for Auto King. Um, we have learned our lesson the hard way a few times and we're like, oh, okay, like maybe we'll, you know, use other people. And then we always come back to you guys. We always come back to Shmuel and Yochai and we're always, okay, this is who we need to trust our car with. So thank you. Thank you. I'm not really a mechanic. I'm the guy that runs the business. Um, if I touched a car, the guys would go screaming because I break things. But I run the business. I understand what's going on. I help manage everything. Yochai does the back office. I do the front office. But we try. It's very important that people should feel comfortable with us. It's why I think one of our successes is that we speak the language. Yeah. People, I'm able to explain in a way that you'll understand what's going on and why we need to do something. Uh, And we try very hard to look out for what's best for you, more importantly than necessarily what's best for our bottom line. Because eventually, if we do things that are good for you, then it's going to help our bottom line anyways. Great. No, I mean, I definitely have seen it numerous times. Recently, I just came to you guys. My nail needed to be put in because the bumper was a little bit messed up, uh, which was something that we did when we went to the doctor and whatever. Our car got messed up a bunch of times when we went to the hospital, which happens in Israel. Um, And then we also had a windshield wiper. And I went to Yochai and I said, you know, how do we fix this and whatever. And he fixed it for me on the spot. It took five minutes. And he charged me nothing. Um, and I think, like, that is something that right. is really impressive. That, like, yeah, like, meaning, obviously, you guys, you know how to make a living and you know how to have a business. But, like, having a business is also about understanding when to just be like, okay, like, these, this is a good customer. She's at us all the time. Let's just, like, have this one slide. You don't have to always be a pig, only some of the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> For sure. And also, I've been really impressed by, you know, how you guys have handled a bunch of situations in terms of like, you know, I'm one of those people that I need to understand everything. As you know, I'm not one of those people that's like, just do it, whatever. Like, I don't want to deal with it. Like, I want to understand when something's wrong, when something is not going the way that I'd want it to be, you know? And I really appreciate the fact that you guys always try to explain it to me, even when I'm being a nick, you know, even when I'm asking way too many questions, like you always really try to, um, explain it to me, and that means a lot to me, and it really helps. You say being a dick. If this was called the Funny Mechanic Story Podcast, I could go for an hour about <laughs> the funny stories. You're nowhere near. Really? Oh my god! What's your license plate number, ma'am? Uh, which one, the front or the back? Yes, is my tire flat? Well, look at it, and <laughs> does it have an air? Sure, it's got air in it. Just in the bottom, it doesn't have air. Wow. True stories, all of them. 
Oh my yeah. god. So don't worry about it. We <laughs> deal with everything. Wow. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, that person probably has a lot more explaining to do. Thank God I know what my license plate number is. So back to your story though, because we haven't even started it. Um, Shmuel, where did you grow up and what was your family like? So I was born in Chicago. Um, and I grew up in Chicago. I have an older sister and I have a younger brother who's a year and a half younger than me. Um, our mom passed away when I was eight years old and my father remarried and I have another brother, 12 years younger than I am. Uh, we all now live here, but I grew up in Chicago. Um, I went to three high schools. I went to Tells Yeshiva in Chicago, Chavitz Chaim in Milwaukee, and uh, Skokie Yeshiva graduated me. And I, I like to say all the time that I've been thrown out of some of the best yeshivas in the Northern Hemisphere. So why were you kicked out? Um, I was an adventure. I, listen, it's tough. Remarriage, mom dying, you know, it, 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 there's a lot of turmoil going up there. I was a difficult kid, always very respectful. Uh, adults had no idea that, you know, but I was a big troublemaker. Um, and so I spent a lot of time cutting school when I was in elementary school and my father wanted to keep his thumb on me. So he put me in tells where he knew everybody. And that was a very rigid place. I didn't really like that that much. And I went to Hubbard's Chaim. I did okay. But again, there I started acting out. So, you know, my dad told me one thing. I remember when I was 11th grade and I had just been thrown out. Uh, and, and he said to me, my job is to get you through high school with every door open to you. Nothing's closed to you. You didn't ruin anything. Everything is open to you so that all the possibilities. Once I get you there, it's on you. And I've, I've said that to my own kids because uh, I, I really appreciated that, that he said, listen, I'm there for you and I want to make sure. So, so he did. And I got through 12th grade and I came to here to yeshiva and got thrown out of the yeshiva here and went to a different yeshiva and went to YU and got thrown out of there a few times. And you like, you know, I, I wasn't the easiest kid. I was a very, very difficult troublemaker. There was no question. I enjoyed myself. Um, uh, wasn't, you know, bad. I wasn't nasty. I didn't do bad things to other kids. I just quietly in my own little, and in high school, when I got kicked out of 11th grade, parents were calling when they heard I was switching to go to a different yeshiva, they were calling my parents. What do you know about the yeshiva? What's going on? Oh my God. You're taking Shmuel out of the yeshiva. Like, you know, this great kid, because I was very sly and quiet about my troublemaking. No one knew I was respectful. I spoke really nicely. And and I projected a very clean-cut image. Uh, and I just, you know, on the side, I was basically, you know, free-for-all. I did whatever I wanted and didn't really worry about what the consequences were. Not anything like crazy, but... Like, what were some of the things that you did? What were some of the things? Like, in ninth grade, I would go to the arcade, and it was against the rules. And they're like, you know, you can't go to the arcade. I'm like, okay, no problem. <laughs> I'm going to the arcade. So, th so that was dumb rules. But but in, in like 11th grade, I used to cut school all day and go down to the docks. And I would hang out with sailors and all the riffraff that were there. And I'd just spend the day hanging out there and having a good time and talking to people. I didn't do anything, but that's how I spent my day. And then I'd come back and I'd go back to the dorm. And whenever anybody was sick, I would try to get them food. So I'd make sure they have food. Then I'd go out to the movies or I'd go out here and I, I just, I didn't attend class. I didn't do things like that. Yeah. Um, so I, th that was more like that. I, I did a lot of cutting school. 
Um, maybe a little bit of cheating here or there on a test so that I could pass. I was a teenager. I was like everybody right. else. I remember one time I, I got a math test and it was three pages long. And I knew everything on the first page and everything on the third page. I knew nothing on the middle page. So I pulled out the middle page and in the staple, I took out that little piece of paper that was in there and handed it in. And they're like, wow, somehow they misstapled your test and I got a hundred. So like, you know, dumb stuff, but you know, stuff you get away with. And, you know, in college it was a little worse, you know, college, more stuff, you know, uh, not handing in papers, tell, asking the teacher about my, whatever I could do to try and get through. I knew their rule books in college. I, I was smart. You know, I read the catalog for the yeshiva, yeshiva university, and I knew the rules. So I used every rule to my advantage and I dropped this class and I'd move that class. And I'm like, oh no, you didn't get a good enough grade. I'm like, oh, I dropped that class. You can't get, and my guidance counselor said, when you leave here, I'm going to bring you in to show them all the loopholes. Cause it's unbelievable. I really, I wanted to be a lawyer. My dad was a judge. My dad was a lawyer and he was a judge. And I, my dream then was always, I want to be a lawyer. My dad will retire from being a judge and we'll open a firm together. And not, you know, he was a show fate. Yeah. The show fate, that license plate uh, in the background of my office, that's my dad's license plate. Um, he was a judge. He was a federal bankruptcy judge. I think for 17 years. Uh, and then he was a mediator, arbitrator. He was highly respected. Um, and if it wouldn't have been for the going to school part, I would have been great at it. But I wasn't that great of a student. Well, it, it doesn't sound like you weren't a good student. You just were like a troublemaker and you liked to like ditch school a lot. And I think that that is one of those things that, you know, right. over the years we've spoken a lot and as a kid who also lost her father when I was eight years old, and then also as a troublemaker, you know, we have a lot of this in common, you know, it's challenging when you go through such a hard thing at a young age, and then your whole life is like, screw this, I don't need any of this, like, my life is, you know, my life, I'm gonna own it, and I'm gonna do whatever I want, and no one's gonna tell me otherwise, um, so I have a lot of, you know, similar experiences to you of, like, I never stayed in the same class. I was always switching. My schedule was never set. Type the paper at the last minute. <laughs> yep. I can see the report card already. The report card is, Tamara is really smart. And if she only applied herself, she'd do so much better. That was every report card I've ever gotten in my entire life. Exactly. That's exactly it. Everyone. If he would only apply himself, boy, oh boy, would he be great. Exactly. And the, and the lesson that I always got from my mom was be courteous and respectful. Do, you don't need to get A's in school. Just don't bully other kids. You know, that was her, her lesson to me was like, just be a good person. <laughs> my dad was more like, my dad was more like, why are you getting such bad grades? You, he was a little more frustrated with me. Uh, you could do so much better. Why aren't you doing better? You could you could do it. It's in your head. You But again, he said to me, my job is to get you through. And he did. He got me through. I got into college. Everything was open to me. No doors were closed. Well, at least then. I closed whatever doors I closed. But he really got me through. And, you know, the brains I know are there. It's just I didn't have the work. I didn't have to have the zitz flight to sit in and so I, you know, you got to make things work for yourself. That's how things happen. You, you kind of 100%. find something that works for you. For sure. 100%. I mean, my mom also always said when I was in college, tomorrow, I'm not expecting you to pass with A's. Just get through college. Finish college. All she wanted me to do was finish college. And actually, I was a Jewish studies major. And the reason why I majored in Jewish studies was 
specifically because I did not have to get any textbooks and I could just get a Tanakh and just go. And um, yeah, and I got through college and I graduated and then I made all yeah. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm out of here. Um, but uh, yeah, it, I, if we can go back to, you know, your mom passing away, your mom passed away when you were eight. Um, can you tell the story of what happened? How did she pass away? So my mom had breast cancer and it was a time in the early seventies when now it's like, you know, self-examinations and early testing and all these different things that didn't exist in that, in that time. Um, and, uh, it turns out that, uh, her mom had it and, and her father's mother and like, like all the women in the family, uh, had it and she had the gene. We didn't know anything about these genes or anything like that till much later when somebody in the family got tested and found that they had the gene. Oh, wow. Like the BRCA gene? Yeah, the BRCA gene. My mom had it. I'm sure she had it. I mean, she was never tested because they didn't have testing for it then. Uh, but she had uh, uh, breast cancer and didn't even pay attention to it because no one, you didn't do those things. And by the time she went to get it, even looked at, it was already metastasized all over. Uh, it was very bad. She was very young. Wow. And, um, and she was in her late 20s. Oh, wow. She was in her late 20s. Yeah. Wow. She was yeah. younger she, than She me. died when she was 31. Yeah, she died when she was 31, which was a, a tough year for me. When I turned 31, it was really hard because right. I, I realized I, I outlived my mother. Um, yeah. So she was being treated, um, and it was in her brain cavity. And she was being treated uh, in a hospital in New York. And my, uh, they weren't around. My grandparents were staying in the house. And uh, there was something that happened on a Shabbos. And we weren't sure what was going on. There was a lot of phone calls and everything. And on Sunday, uh, my uncle came and told us uh, that my, my mother had died. And we didn't know this. I didn't know this for many years. Uh, but apparently, they had made a mistake and put... Uh, the chemotherapy that she was getting in her brain cavity into her IV and an IV into the brain shunt. And she died within hours. Now, she was on the way out. She was months away. They were not being successful in treating her, but it was hastened. It was something that happened very quickly when I was eight in, in, in November. Was that massive medical malpractice? So I'm not a lawyer. My dad was, um, and there was a lawsuit and yes, but this was way before you had million dollar verdicts and things like that. So yeah, there was a lawsuit and there was money involved, not big amounts or anything like that. Having gotten some of the money that was in a trust fund and having to use it on education and things like that, uh, I would have easily traded, <laughs> even had I gotten millions of dollars, I would have easily have traded it, you know, to have more time. So uh, the lawsuits 100%. and all that, it's, it's, you know, we weren't involved in it. We were too young and it changed a little bit for us, but not much. But I'm saying like in terms of, I mean, it, it was a medical like malfunction. Yeah. A nurse made a mistake. A nurse made a mistake and, and shortened her life, but shortened her life by months. And I didn't know about it until much later. I even knew that there was a lawsuit. And I didn't know what it was about until much, much later. You know, I, I might have been 18, 19 before I found out. So when you found out, how did that affect your stance on the medical system? And no, nothing. People make mistakes. No. It wasn't. I don't. If it was a malicious thing or if someone was negligent that they that they knew something and they 
the person made a mistake and it's terrible. My mom wasn't living at home. I was young. I didn't know anything in that anyways. The difference That's between right. months, I, you know, I was so much older and past that by the time I found out that there wasn't anything to process. At most, I felt maybe a little bit angry at my father for waiting and for never telling me, but waiting till I was much older to acknowledge that that's what was happened. But he wanted to protect us. Listen, you know, everybody makes mistakes. I make mistakes. You make mistakes. My father made mistakes too. Uh, And I I try to keep it in the forefront of my mind always with everyone that everyone's trying to do what's best. They're trying to do what they think is the right thing to do. And so if they make a mistake, you got to give them a little bit on it because at least they were taking a swing. They were trying and they made a mistake. Great. Wow. Wow. That's a really, that's a really, you know, important perspective. I mean, especially in your field, like going back to being a car mechanic, I feel like you see mistakes all the time um, and like really stupid mistakes, you know, and um, some of them are ours. Some of them are our mistakes and we have to own up to them and say, listen, we made a mistake. Sometimes we do. That's what people are. They make mistakes. It's the way it is. But even like accidents, I'm saying, like, ac- like I'm sure you've dealt with many accidents. I know that you've dealt with an accident that I had and, you know, that we've had to bring the car in. And it, it's, it's not fun when you come in and you're like, yeah, I messed up again, right. you know, and you're like, yeah. shoot. And, um, you know, but like I always tell Giddy, I say, oh, he's going to make fun of me again, <laughs> you know, but. Well, there's a reason we call you Crash. Is that we gonna call me? <laughs> yep, call you crash. Oh man, <laughs> oh man, yeah, yeah. Basically, um, that's a uh, yeah. Oh man, um. But the good news is, the good news is, the worst thing that happened was something happened to your car. Big deal. And I tell that to yeah. people all the time. Yes, it's easy for me to say it's only money because it's the money you're giving me. But it's only money. That's it. And sometimes it's a lot of money, but you have much more important things that you have to deal with than, oh my God, I got a bump in my car. So perspective is always important. Yeah. I mean, I always feel like like going to Audit King is like another therapy session. You know, it's like, oh man, Shmuel's going to have another lesson for us today. Um, so I'm curious, like your sister and your brother, right? How did they deal with the death of your mother? And, you know, I know that you said that they're in Israel. Were they also troublemakers? How did their life kind of evolve after your mother? Died? So you'd, you'd have to probably speak to them, um, to really get a more, you know, I'm, I don't want to speak for them, but my sister got her grade. She, you know, also was a little bit of an actor outer and, and, and a little bit of a rebel, uh, but again, again, she's, you know, a girl, the only girl and, um, you know, wanted to set her own pace. She came to Israel for Hakshara on the B'nai Kiva Hakshara program. What and is that? essentially she never, so it's, uh, I don't know if they still exist even the program, but you used, you'd go to, um, kibbutz for half, for a third of the year, yeshiva for half, a third of the year, like a yeshiva B'nai Kiva, and then a third of the year, both kibbutz and yeshiva half and half. And she was on kibbutz Yavne which is right next door to where my son right now is in Hester. Um, and she never came back. She went to university here. She stayed here. She married an Israeli guy. She raised her family here. She lives here still. Um, and I think that was how she dealt with it. She uh, went her own way. Um, my sister uh, isn't religious. Uh, and I think that's also might have been part of it, that, that she wanted to go do her own thing. Um, we're very close. 
Uh, I see her all the time. We go out for breakfast on Friday sometimes. I see you've seen my Facebook send my sister sometimes in those pictures. Um, and that's how she's self-sufficient. She's living um, in uh, Kiryat Ono. She's, she's got the four boys, all very Israeli. Um, and that's the life that she has. And I have a younger brother. Uh, many people will know him. He's uh, Ellie Katz from Symphonia. If you've seen their Yishai Rebo concert lately, my brother produced it. He does music, entertainment. If you've been in a hotel in uh, America and you've had Cholomoy shows, he probably produced that as well. He's very actively involved in uh, in entertainment world. Um, And he does all of Yishai Rebo's. But he lives in America or Israel? So he lives in Hashmonaim in Israel. And he has a place in America in Passaic and... He goes there for the summer because he's very busy with weddings and bar mitzvahs and everything. And then his family comes with him then. But the rest of the year, they're here and he flies back and forth. And he has some kind of deal with his wife. I'm not sure exactly how many days it is, but there's a maximum amount of days that he can be in America or overseas. And then he has to come back at least for a visit. He's got to make a visit to show his face in the house and then he can go again. Um, And she runs the house here. And that's, you know... And he was also a little bit of a troublemaker uh, for my parents. Uh, definitely, you know, did his own thing. Uh, certainly, you know, much better student uh, as far as behaving than I was. But still, you know, did his own thing, a rebel. I was more of a, you know, goody two-shoes when it came to my father. You know, I, I listened when he said things. My brother, a little less. And then our youngest brother, who he was one at my bar mitzvah, and my son was one at his bar mitzvah. Um, so oh, wow. I helped raise him. I helped coach him. I coached his little league. I helped him teach, you know, play sports. And so it's a different kind of relationship with that younger brother. And, you know, he, his mother... Uh, you know, is still uh, with us. So it was, that's a little bit different. But my siblings from my mother, um, each in their own way, uh, everybody acts out. There's just no way not to. No, for sure. For sure. Um, it's interesting because I feel like I was the only one that really acted that. I always say my mom had like a sister, my brother, and like I was like 10 kids in one, you know? Um, but it's interesting that you feel like everyone acted out a little bit. Yeah, so like... At my dad's Levaya, my dad passed away a year and a half ago. And at his Levaya, um, I was telling some stories and, you know, talking about it. And I said, you know, as I was writing this Hespit and I was thinking, you know, oh, wow, look at all these funny stories. And, you know, I was thinking they're really not funny stories necessarily about my dad, but they're funny stories about me getting a lot of trouble <laughs> and causing my dad a lot of anguish. You know, I did this and I did that. And it was a lot of stories of me. I was definitely the biggest of all the troublemakers, meaning, you know, yeah. I got into the most trouble. Well, you're still a troublemaker, so it makes sense. <laughs> yes, very much so. Ask my neighbors. Um, oh, man. Oh, man. Well, you did. You you also showed me your awesome perm stuff that you did. Like, you're very creative. You, you do a lot of creative stuff, and uh, I feel like that's part of your personality. Meaning, you know, that's the whole thing with being an entrepreneur, being a creative. You're right. out of the box, you know? I'm out there. I'm out there. I definitely like to experience things. I wasn't always like that. Uh, I used to be a lot more judgmental. I used to be a lot more, you know, try and stick to the grid. Uh, a lot of that's my kids. My kids helped relax me and open me. But some of it is also like, you know, I used to be very judgmental uh, about other people's religiosity and things like that. And I had a neighbor, uh, Gabe Levy, who used to always say to me, Shmuel, a Jew is a Jew. He's your brother. And it really sunk in. And I really felt myself 
changing with that. And like even coming on Aliyah, things had to happen. Certain things had to happen in order to spark something that made a change. But one of the great things I, I think I, I've been able to do is I, I really try hard not to make the same mistake and to grow and learn from everything that happens. Um, and it's hard because I'm a very immature, live at the outside, extreme outside of my skin kind of guy. And I'm, uh, I, I, I'm passionate. You got to be a little bit crazy to make Aliyah, first of all. That's, you know, everybody, anybody who's an Olat. Because in order to make Aliyah, you got to be a little bit crazy. We're not like our grandparents who ran away from Belarus or Russia or Poland. We weren't running away from anything. We had a great life. We ran too. And you got to be a little nuts for that. So when you're nuts about one thing, you tend to be nuts about other things. So we, we're a little bit eccentric. That's who we are. We're eccentric people, uh, the Olim. Uh, and that's great. It's a whole bunch of really, really, really out there people. So, I mean, that's interesting that you're saying that, right? Because I feel like for so many years, yeah, we were running, you know, two. And um, now I feel like maybe there's a little bit of a shift in America um, and that people are starting to get the memo of like, it's time to run away. Um, it's time to not be here when there's going to be like, I mean, I've been saying this since sixth grade. I have a question for you. What happened at COVID? Everybody said, oh, man. Aliyah's going to wipe everybody out. They're all going to come. And there was an increase, and then it stopped because everyone got comfortable again. And you know what? In my opinion, this is my opinion. Yes, we will see a spike because this is a brutal year, and it's been painful. It is so hard right now. I've said it many, many times. Today is like October 143rd. You just can't get past it. It's so hard. I think the 114th, actually. But we we really feel stuck and it's hard, but tomorrow will come. Yeah. And that's, I think what got me through all of my life, the realization that tomorrow will come and I'll get up this morning and I'll grab my pants. I'll put my right leg in, I'll put my left leg in and I'll put on my shirt. And, and then at the end of the day, go back to my, and the, the next day, put my pants back on and tomorrow's going to come uh, at least for most of us. And so you just got to keep going and eventually you'll get to tomorrow. Yeah. And I think that's going to happen also. I'm, I just think that the people in America, those who don't jump in the initial wave, nah, they're going to be comfortable and they have their lives and their jobs. And eh, it's not so bad. And why would I want to go over there where they're shooting and rockets and all that? And I, I, I know what you're saying. I hear it, that that the times are making it a, uh, a difficult thing. And maybe it is the writing that people are going to run away, but, Unfortunately, you go back to Nazi Germany in the 1930s and people said, won't happen here. In Germany, enlightened Germany never happened here. And it did. So, you know, I I don't know what's going to happen, but. I think, you know, it's interesting. I feel like another thing that you and I have in common, we are very mature in a lot of different ways. But I feel like when you lose a parent at a young age, you have a little bit more perspective on life. And it's like, what really matters? And, And I feel like. You know, for me, it was a no-brainer. I knew. Like, people always ask me, when did you know you were going to make Aliyah? I'm like, there was never a time that I didn't know. I knew my whole life I was going to make Aliyah. Um, and it just developed more and more and more. And I finally came. And I think that, like, yeah, like, something really has to shake the boat sometimes. Something really has to make you be like, oh, right. This is the path to go on. This makes sense. Um, and it, just a little bit more perspective. So that was me. I was the second guy. I was the second guy. I didn't want to come. 
And I'll tell you, it was because I had suffered a loss so young and I had kids and I said, I, I can't, I don't, I can't go through that with my kids. I don't want my kids to be in the army. I don't want to put them at risk. I, I don't think I could handle that loss. Oh, wow. I don't think I could do that. And I was not ready for that. And my wife wanted to come in the worst way. She was so, she wanted to come. She wanted to come. She wanted to come, but she knew that I wasn't going to come. And I had a good friend. His name was Jay Gottlieb. He was a lawyer for the yeshiva I was working for. Not a religious guy, Jewish guy. And we got to be very close, very good friends. Uh, and it was Arab Yom Kippur, the year before I made Aliyah. And I happened to be in Manhattan. And I, hey, this is Jay's office building. And I went up to visit him just to say hi for two minutes. I was there for 45 minutes. He wouldn't let me leave. And he's a guy who bills by the hour. And I didn't have an appointment. But he said, no, nah, you're my friend. Let's talk and chat. Fine. Sukkis comes on. And it's after Sukkis, I'm talking to another lawyer in the law firm about something. And he goes, by the way, did you hear about Jay? I said, what do you, what do you mean, Jay? No. What happened? Oh, he, he passed away. I said, what, what are you, crazy? Jay passed away? He wasn't. I just saw him. He was in a one-car accident. He was driving home, and he was in a one-car accident. What is that? So he was driving down the highway. He was in a little Mazda Miata sports car, and the car flipped over, and he got crushed, and he was killed. And it really hit me very hard, okay? It hit me. I was stunned. And for the rest of the day, no one no one could speak with me and talk. I, I was just – but then a light bulb went on in my head, and I said, you know what? God looked at his watch and he said, it's the day for Jay. And he went, bing, there's Jay, I'm taking him. And I said, where would I rather be or that my kids would be? If it's their day, if it's the time for their kid to get called, where would I rather they be? And I'd rather they were in Hebron. I'd rather they were standing below a post, you know, in Gaza, whatever it is, than writing in a highway at seven at night and have the car flip over in the rain. Oh my God. Yeah, no, for sure. Wow. And, and that's why that, that's what motivated me to, I lost my rejection for Aliyah. And because of that, I felt like, uh, you know, I could go. And then that was Sukkot. We were here in July, October to July. That was the, the length of time it took us to get here. Wow. And your kids were older, right? How old were your kids? So our oldest son was 15. Our daughter was 13. We had a daughter then who was 10, a daughter who was seven. Our son was five. And we had a son who was one year old. Wow. Um, our son who was 15 did not make Aliyah. That was the deal we made when we made Aliyah. He did not want to come. Uh, and we told him that we're not going to. The same thing I my father told me. I said, listen, my job is to get you with all the doors open. So we did not make him an Israeli citizen. He finished at 18. He got a GED diploma. He finished two years of learning on a gap year program here that no longer exists. And then he went to YU and he graduated YU and he lives in America. And that's where his life is. Everyone else lives here. When we set this up for him, we said to ourselves, listen, we're living in America. We got six kids. We're probably going to have one or two move to Israel. So... Let's go to Israel. And if we have one or two who stay in America, all right, then it was the same thing. And we had another son who was in America this year. We thought was going to stay, but because of the war, he came back. Um, and now he's he left everything behind and he said, I'm not going back ever. And we were sure he was going to stay. 
Uh, and he's totally changed his life around. Uh, and that was because he came back because he felt he needed to be a part of the um, uh, of the effort. And and he's in the yeshiva. So he wasn't in yeshiva. He was looking for a job because they didn't get drafted back uh, into Miluim. And then he was here a few days. They drafted him into Miluim. He's working in the army during the day. And then about five or six weeks in, he decided he wanted to go to yeshiva. And he's in yeshiva in the afternoons and evenings. He has yeshiva in Bayit Vagan. And he's totally a different kid than when he was before the terrorist attack. Was he religious? I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, but was he religious? No, no, it's fine. He was not. He was not. He was not. He had left. And he had a few months ago started talking about, okay, I'm keeping Shabbos again and I'm going to, you know, I want to keep kosher. But he wasn't religious. And he had a friend who started learning with him. And then when he came back, he started going to a shear from a rabbi. And now he's in the yeshiva. And when he gets a day off, he's there learning all day. I learn with him every Tuesday night, go to have a harusa with him in the yeshiva and buy it began. It's great. And he's a totally different kid. Must give you so much nachas to see him on this new derech. So I hate to say it, but I had nachas no matter where he was because he's a great kid. And I know that people are like, you know, oh my God, how could you say that he wasn't religious? He was, he's a great kid. He's always cared about people. He's always been there for people. He's always loved people. And that he wasn't religious, of course it bothered us. But that's not who he is. He is a great kid, and now he's religious. And that's fine. And we would have loved him. Anyway, I have a sister who's not religious. She's a wonderful person, and I don't love her any less because she's not religious, because she's my sister, and I grew up with her, and she's a wonderful person. She's a wonderful mother. She loves her kids. She cares about her kids. She does wonderful things for other people. She does chesed, she's, and she's not religious. But as what you were saying before, also, like, a Jew is a Jew is a Jew, right? right. So yes. um, you have to love them no matter what. Yeah. So, wow. I mean, that that's really crazy. Wait, so you made Aliyah, like, 20 years ago? I made Aliyah 17 years ago, 17 and a half. We just passed this year. We passed 50% of our married life is now in, or more. We've been married more time in Israel than we were in America. And we came here with a 15-year-old. I mean, we were here, uh, uh, we were married 16 years when we came here. Wow. You moved to Beit Shemesh originally or no? So we talked about moving to other places. We talked about going to like the Gush because I had friends there. But Goldie, my wife, wanted to come to Beit Shemesh because she knew a lot of people here. Uh, we kind of used to call it Beit Shemesh Tinek East. Uh, you know, like we'd say we almost moved to Israel. It's suburban. Israel, because there's so much Americans. You could you could survive here. You could do whatever you want without any Hebrew. Without, I mean, there's a sh- an auto mechanics place you come to, and they don't speak any you know Hebrew if you don't want. So th- there's so much available here. We wanted the soft landing, and we got the soft landing. And really interestingly, and for us, it's been a little bit unique. We have some friends who are like this also, but for us, it's been with so many kids. Our kids are very very Israeli. I have you know. A, not yeah. the one that lives in Livingston, New Jersey. He's not at all. <laughs> He's, but <laughs> but our oldest daughter married a boy who was born here, and he speaks great English, um, but he's Israeli, you know. And our next daughter married uh, a boy who was born in America, made Aliyah, etc. But uh, he was in the Air Force, and he had been the highest level in the air force that an Ole had been at like you know when he got promoted he's a big guy in the wow. reserves and oh he he does a lot of stuff and they're very very hebrew comfortable 
I have a daughter who teaches special ed in an autistic school. She got an honor scholarship from the Ministry of Education. And, you know, again, all Hebrew, all day. My son, who's in yeshiva now, when he was in the army and I came for the swearing in ceremony, we came and I went to go meet his guys. I said something to him in English. And one of the guys said, you're American? (laughs) They couldn't believe that he was American. Even look at me. Look at me. I'm his father. How more American can you get? Um, and our my my final son, the youngest one, he's in Karabiavna, he's in Hasder. They're all extremely, even though we came to Beit Shemesh. Now, none of them live in Beit Shemesh. They all moved to other places because there's really nothing. And most of our friends have a lot of kids who are in Beit Shemesh because they're more American than our kids ended up. But you never know. You're right. No, for sure. For sure. I mean, it's interesting because also all of your kids seem very, very, very smart. Like that is another thing. Like when you when you listen to what all of your kids are doing today, like they're very smart kids. So I guess yeah, like that got, is you know, and and some of them behave, which they got from their mother. So that's but yeah, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, you, we have kids who are accomplished and they are very bright, and we're very proud of that. A lot of it is environment and genetics and whatever but we we've been blessed that we've had kids you know uh, my son is uh, uh an executive for his company and you know does very well in america and our oldest daughter is a nurse and she's in charge of the ship and she keeps on getting this prom- the, the next daughter keeps on getting promotion they have the promotion she's in a high-tech company and the the one who's a, a teacher and that's amazing so if you were to tell yourself when you were like you know 20 years old that this was going to be your life, that you were going to have all these very Israeli kids and that they were all going to be very successful, very smart. Like, what would you have said to yourself? Like, would you have believed that? If you would have told anyone who knew me at that time, (laughs) no one would have believed it. It would have been, it just, no, no. Maybe that I would have, (laughs) you know, nice kids, um, uh, you know, smart kids, they could hear, they could see it, you know, uh, because, because again, I, like I said before, I was a really well-behaved, I knew how to act by, you know, and it was, and, and therefore I had a good name, even though I was a troublemaker behind the scenes. Um, but, but Israel, my family, none of my family, my, no one expected any of us. There were all these other families in Chicago when we were growing up were like, you know, the Zionistic families. Oh, they're going... The Katzins, like when we said we were going, my parents said to me, when we meant that you should support us, we meant buy bonds. Like, <laughs> we didn't mean take our grandchildren and go to Israel, but we're all here. All of us are here. Um, and my parents came on Aliyah 2014, uh, and they were here till it, you know, my dad passed away in 2022. Um, it's a year and a half. And so they were here, you know, they had a place in. In Boca. Wait, so, but your your dad is buried here. Here, here in Beit Shemesh, in Eretz Achaim. Yeah, I'm not, we, that means we get to see him. Uh, the other day, we had a bad day here. Uh, uh, soldiers were blown up in a building, and we lost 20 soldiers, I think, in one day, and it was tough. I went with my wife somewhere, and I said, we're stopping to talk to my father. And I said something to him, and I said, listen, wow. you know, you know, you would have hated this, and he would have. Um, and, I, you know, I... I, I I know that you're not in charge of anything, but you're a little closer to the guy who is. So maybe, you know, you have a grandson. He's in Gaza right now. And, 
and probably another one you know, who's a medic who probably goes in and out all the time. Uh, and I've had other ones who have been in and out. And I have a son in the army and a son-in-law still in the army. And you know, just they're all over everyone and, and my neighbors and everybody who I know. And it's, you know, you can't sneeze without hitting somebody. And and just up the block, just today, my son's, the Rosh Hashiva of his high school lost a son today. Well, it's also, it's one of the biggest yeshivas. Like, yeah. I feel like everyone I know goes to Shalai Torah. Um, and I, I think all of Beit Shemesh. Yeah. I had two sons in that, in that system. Yeah. yeah. And so it's, it's, it's. It's tough. It's so hard. So I said to him, listen, you're a little bit closer. Maybe say something for us. Help us out. And it's it's nice to have him here. My mother is in Chicago. And my cousin went to go visit her and he sent me pictures. Wow. And I said, I want you to know, it really made me feel good that you went. Yeah. Because all my siblings, we're here. But I have two uncles that are there. I wanted to bring her over, but I have two uncles that are there. And I, you know, I don't think they'd be receptive to that. It also costs a fortune yeah. it's so expensive yeah. i mean it is i mean we've looked into it too because of my father it, it's 20 to like 40 000, i don't know it's a lot of money yeah. and um yeah but i i, I there, there would be people who would visit her here um and eventually there won't there. be people who would visit her there but right now there are my, my my aunt i have an aunt who goes and harriet um she goes all the time and uh, my cousin went and it just, you know, it, it's meaningful that they're able to go. Um, I'm not a big believer in that kind of stuff as much, but it's nice to be able to go and, you know, and and and, and an Arab Yom Kippur and, you know, Arab Chag and, you know, to be able to visit and give, give kavod uh, is important to me. That's amazing. I mean, I don't feel like I have any connection to the cemetery. So it's so interesting to see how much, you know. I'm a coin. I'm a Kohen. Remember, I can't go anywhere. But because my dad was a Kohen, he's buried on right next to the road. So we're able to drive right up and be one foot away because there's a wall. The the cemeteries in Israel are amazingly well done. Some of them are, oh, my God, what were they thinking? But the Beit Shemesh ones are generally well designed that a Kohen can go through and, and really get himself situated where he could really see everything be, be close. So I get to go right up next to my dad's cover whenever I want. Wow. That's amazing. That's so nice. So what made your dad decide to make Aliyah? All of his grandchildren were here and he wanted to be with them. That's it. That was the only reason. They used to come to visit for a couple months at a time. We'd find them in an apartment a couple blocks away and they'd stay for a couple months and visit. And the first year we were here, uh, my wife had cancer and we had to go to America for treatment. We were gone for about six weeks. I came for one job as during that time, maybe seven, eight weeks even. And my my dad and my mom, my stepmother, uh, uh, came and moved into my house. And that was a little surreal, I think, for him because my grandparents moved into my house when my mom was sick. Um, and there were a lot of similarities that were going on. And that was a very tough time for both of us because we both were reliving certain things uh, of, our, of our past. What kind of cancer did your wife have? Uh, so she had lung cancer, a very rare form of lung cancer wow. uh, called fetal adenocarcinoma of the lung. And they had misdiagnosed it here. They had never seen it in Israel. Never seen that type of cancer. That's wow. how rare it is. Uh, and this friend, Gabe Levy, who taught me a Jew was a Jew, the same thing. He's a pathologist. And uh, we we went to uh, Benny Fisher, who runs Magen Lecholeh, Yerushalayim. And he looked at my wife's uh, records and he said, um, this is really, really puzzling. I don't understand what's going on. 
can you get insurance in America? If you can, go to America. And we did. And the first thing I did was send slides to my friend Gabe. Uh, the, a Jew is a Jew guy. And he looked at the slides and he called me and he goes, dude, this is not what you said it is. I'm going over Sloan Kettering right now. I know the head of pathology and we're going to figure this out. And it was a totally different thing. And the prognosis was different. The treatment was different. Had she stayed in Israel, she wouldn't be, be here now. There was just no way. But things worked out. She she went, we went to the right doctors and you know, we got a good solution and, and a good treatment. And it came back uh, a few years later. And again, we did the same process. And you know, Baruch Hashem, now it's uh, 14 years since the last time she had anything. And she's clean and, wow. you know, Safta Goldie's uh, taking care of the grandchildren. Wow. So crazy. That sounds... You've just been through the ringer. I feel like you've just had a lot of... Um whammies hit your family hit your life and you just and every day every day you gotta get up and say tomorrow's gonna come tomorrow's gonna come i'm just gonna put on my pants wear my big boy pants today and i'm gonna do what i gotta do to get through the day and make sure i get everybody else through the day and i can come to pieces later when it's all taken care of and how do you keep your humor and your personality and all that? Like, I, you know, one of the things that has really uh, shocked Giddy and I throughout this war is that there are so many people that we knew that had big personalities and they've become very somber because of this war. Um, and it's frightening to see all these people that are just so sad today um, because of how the war has affected them. But I feel like, you know, your sons and your son-in-laws and your... You know, everyone's in the war right now, but you've also dealt with your the death of your mother, and you've also dealt with your wife having cancer. Like, there's just been a lot. How have you just pushed forward and, and still kept your personality? I'm going to go backwards through your question because it's really different answers. Uh, I have a son-in-law who's in the Army. He was injured in, in Suketan, and he's in Modiin now, in the intelligence part, and his job is notifying families that their son has been killed and helping organize funerals, and that's a brutal job and it, it hurts to watch. Um, but he's got, somebody's got to do it. You got to do it. Somebody has to be there. And I'm glad that it's him because he, he helps them. Uh, and, and I'm not the same guy I was three months ago. I've been wanting to go on vacation. We've been talking about going out just for a couple of days to the dead sea. And we were planning to do it on that day when the 24 soldiers were killed. And I don't have the heart for it. I don't, how can I go on a vacation when these families are suffering? I feel like it's a betrayal and, and it's, it's tough. It's a hard thing. So even I'm affected. But now go back to your original question. I think my personality and the humor, especially the making jokes of everything. And I think probably you're going to say the same thing. That's a defense mechanism from all the pain I was in. When I was a little kid, I was in 90 kinds of pain. And I was suffering. And the only way to make it go away was to laugh. So I made everything into a joke because if it was funny, it wasn't serious. And I could laugh at it and it didn't hurt me. And that, I think, explains most of my childhood and all of my immaturity. All of the th times where I make inappropriate jokes when I, when I was an adult and I stole the seat cushions from the president and the chairman of the board of the shoal when I did duchening on Yom Kippur. Okay, not the right day for a joke, but I just, <laughs> that's who I was. And another place I stole the announcements. 
and they're looking all over where are my announcements, wow. you know, because that's who I was as, and I must've been 35 when I did that because it's a defense mechanism. The more something once I feel wants to hurt me, the more I'm going to make fun of it. And the more I'm going to uh, uh, laugh at it because that's how I get myself out of the pain. Uh, but it's, it's not easy. It's, it's so hard. There are so many different kinds of pain right now from, from all this, you know, you just, these are people's children and, 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 you know, Hey, let's make a deal to free them. Let's t- well, well, then we're just postponing more people getting killed. Releasing terrorists means that more people are going to die. You know, and I have a son who told me if anything happens to me, if I find out that you lobbied to get terrorists released to get me out, I won't speak to you. Now, as a parent, I don't think I could honor that wish, but I get it. There's so many different kinds of pain that people are going through right now that it's hard. So for, for me, that just sparks the, you know, I just want to be even crazier. I want to even do, because that's my defense mechanism. It's the way it is. And I'm, and I'm pretty sure you're very similar. For sure. Yeah. No, 100%. 100%. I, uh, I think that what I was saying before that like, I can be very serious. And like, actually somebody went to me recently and they said to me, I, I went to a uh, Greg's and it was like a waiter. And they're like, I knew you from Instagram. I saw you had such a big personality, but you're such a like, chiller also and i'm like yeah because i'm not like just a massive clown all the time like yeah i can be fun and i can be funny and whatever but like there's also a very serious side when you know it comes out in different ways but uh there's definitely both sides there so i definitely feel you on that how are you at crisis management excellent right so i think that's again another thing that comes from it because we know how to isolate the emotion from the you're able to focus only on the problem, only on the problem, and let's solve the problem, and I can fall to pieces later. Yeah. So, you know, when my wife had cancer and when, you know, whenever anything happens, I go into what I call crisis mode, and I don't let emotions come in, and I just focus on the problem, which I, I knew you were going to say that was the answer, because that's that's yeah, the characteristic. Yeah. Well, my mom and I were talking about it recently. Um, we had a medical emergency that we had to deal with. And we were just talking about it where, like, yeah, like, you just kind of have to shift around your whole schedule because that's what happens. I mean, like, okay, you have to deal with it. Okay, so you're going to deal with it. Um, And, yeah, does it suck? Yeah, sure. But, like, at the end of the day, like, you just kind of have to, like, move on and pick yourself up and figure it out and pivot, you know? Like, I, we're very good at pivoting. Um, And, yeah, it's definitely been a blessing from such a curse that, you you know, we've been able to learn how to do that um, 100%. So, Shmuel, I wanted to talk to you a little bit, and we're going to wrap up soon, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your career trajectory, because I know that you had an interesting career trajectory and that you weren't always a car mechanic. Um, so can you just shed a light on that and how it's changed over the years? Right. So I, I did some consulting work for public companies when I was really, really young, but I really came into my own um my son's yeshiva needed help. I was on the board of directors through a fluke. I, I was a scholarship parent. I wasn't making a lot of money. And I helped them write the business plan to um, to build a building, uh, their high school building. And they needed somebody to explain it to the board of directors. So they invited me to a meeting. And then my name was on the list to be invited to the meetings. So I just kept on getting invited to the meetings. And they wanted a more active group. And they saw that I was somebody who could kind of organize they asked me to be the vice chairman of the board of the yeshiva, and I 
got things moving and I helped and they needed someone to, to come in and help because they were having real problems. And so I came in as the executive director or the business manager for the yeshiva. I did not do anything with education. I ran the business. And at that time, the yeshiva was facing huge uh, problems there. They were in foreclosure on their mortgage. Uh, the IRS were chasing them for back taxes. They had problems with education. They had problems with staffing. They had problems just lots of problems. And I took a very focused approach with a lot of volunteers. No way did I do this on my own. Uh, but there were quite a good bunch of volunteers and parents on the board. And we sat down and we focused on what are the steps that we need to do to get us back into the next level. And we responsibly addressed situations, negotiated that's how that lawyer, Jay Gottlieb, was involved. He was helping us negotiate certain things with the IRS mm -hmm. and with the bank. Um, and so I became a nonprofit management professional through that. Um, and I found that I was fairly good at it. I was good at management. I was good at seeing, again, problem solving. I'm an excellent problem solver. Yeah. Wait, but did you graduate college? Nope. If my mother-in-law is watching now, she's cursing because she's like, he never graduated that bum. <laughs> I did not graduate. I, I got thrown out a bunch of times and I kept wow. on trying to go, but I just, I'm not a studier. I'm just not. I, I can't study. Yeah. So I wasn't a good student. I, you can't study? <laughs> right. I, I just, I, that's not who I was. I, I can be smart as a whip. I, I'm a professional writer. I write for the Five Towns yeah. Jewish Times. I've been writing for them you know, for 17 years. And I've written for other play publications as well. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm literate. I think I'm smart, you know, you know, certainly hope that I'm smart. Uh, but yeah, I just, sure. I don't have a degree. I don't. And it's not something I would, and my kids yeah. who say, Oh, well, what do I need a degree for? Look at you. And I'm like, there are so many doors that were closed for me, jobs that I couldn't apply for because I didn't have it, but that's just who I am. Um, and I went from nonprofit to nonprofit here. I worked for several yeshivas here in the fundraising and management departments. Um, I helped found a yeshiva here uh, that opened its doors. I helped organize it and, you know, set up the financials and set up all the operations and things like that. Uh, but in Israel, more than in America, in Israel, when they say it's a nonprofit organization, they really mean it. I mean, it's a nonprofit. And I had six kids and I was looking at them get older. And I just, I was looking around. I couldn't stay in it because I wasn't making money. My Chavrusa, the guy who I started learning with on Fridays, right? That same guy who I learned with on Fridays was the founder of AutoKey. And he and his partners didn't make it work. They lost a lot of money. Okay. And uh, they sold out to some other guy. And that guy made even less because none of them were actively involved. And he came to me and said, you know, I think the place is about to go under. Wow. Uh, and they were. They owed money and they were about to go bankrupt. He said, I think you could come in. You have to put in some cash. But you're a business guy. And I think you could make a go of it. And I came in and I spent about three weeks sitting in the office. I didn't get a salary. I wasn't paid. I didn't work. I just watched. And I said, I think I could do this. And I made an offer. I became the owner and general manager. and Bar Hashem. Uh, we have not lost money a single year since we've been in business wow. uh, and we paid all the debts and, and, and because 
I'm there as a day-to-day manager. No one else was there as a day-to-day manager. And I'm focused, uh, and Yochai also was focused very much that people have a positive experience, that that we treat people professionally and responsibly, um, and because that's what's going to make them want to come back. Literally, it fell. It fell into my lap. I, 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 I'm not a car guy. I'm not like, oh, look at that car. Oh, it's such a fit. Not me. I don't get excited by cars. I don't get excited. Yeah. It's it's my business. I get excited by the fact that we make money. That's always important. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I'm not emotionally. My mechanics are, oh, look at that car. Look at, oh, look at those brakes. Oh, look at that. It doesn't do much for me. Wow. But, you know, everybody's got to work. And so everybody's got to earn money. Everybody's got to support their family. And, you know, this is how I do do it for my. Wow. That's incredible. That's I, like... Didn't realize there are a lot of people like this. Yeah. There are lawyers who are gardeners. There are, you know, people who change careers here because that's just the way it is. You 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 know, it's it's not easy. Well, I mean, I guess if we can go back to you having kids, right? Like you made Alia, as we said, with older kids. Um, and I just don't want to end this podcast without taking the opportunity to ask you. What is one or two lessons that you've learned or that you learned at the time about bringing a family with older kids to Israel? Like, I feel like that is something that a lot of people struggle with. I'm going to reframe the question. When we were making Aliyah, everybody and their mother came over to us and said, you're going with older kids? Don't you know that going with older kids is a disaster and they're going to be terrible and they're going to be harmed and and it's going to be awful and oh my god what are you doing literally everybody and our answer to that was actually i don't think that's the case i think like everything else not every divorce is a horrible divorce but we think most divorces are because you only hear of the bad ones so yeah we hear about the people who have Aliyah with older kids and it works out terribly because those are the ones, the squeaky wheels, they're the noisy ones, but you never hear about the successes because it's boring. Anything boring you don't hear about on any success. So when you talk about war, when you talk about all these things, you only hear about the disasters because the boring stuff isn't interesting. If I had asked you four months ago, if I would have said tomorrow, we're going to go to war and, and invade Gaza. And they've been preparing for us for years. And they're going to booby traps and everything they can. And they've got all those bombs. And how many soldiers do you think we're going to lose in four months? What would you have said? Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands. Exactly. 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 Now, we lost. Now it's what? About 500 because of the first day we lost hundreds. But in battle... From October 8th on, we've lost 230-something, 200 and around there. So it's terrible. It hurts. We lost, you know. You don't want to say to that person's mother or father, oh, well, you know, hey, it's only. But it could have been. And thankfully, it isn't. That's that's one of the things that you know, that, that Hillel says. Hillel Fool says it all the time. You know, it's it's a miracle. Because it's not a miracle that people are dying. No, it's horrible that people are dying. It's a miracle that less people are dying than could have died. And so what what do we only hear about, though? We hear about those that died because those that didn't die, well, what's interesting about people who didn't die, right? Uh, uh, We had a soldier who died last night. The previous couple days, we didn't hear anything. Nobody had died. 
But it wasn't big news that nobody died because that's not news. So the same thing, you don't hear about kids uh, who are successful when they make Aliyah. You hear about kids who are unsuccessful because that's a tragedy and that word that's interesting and that becomes something that's a news story. So that's one facet of it. The other one is you got to be flexible and you got to know, you know, you got to have give. So our son didn't want to come and we made it possible for him not to be here. And he's happy where he is. And that worked for him. Our other kids wanted to be here. And our daughter who graduated nursing school, number one in her class, who got her bachelor's in nursing, number one, who scored on the advanced uh, 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 degree, number one in the country the year that she took the test. She almost failed out of school the first year she was here because she couldn't speak the language. She didn't. But we made it work. We worked out a program uh, with Yal Van Dyke, who was the Manahelet of uh, Upanad Gila at the time. And it was great. We made a program that worked just for her. Wow. And she graduated and she got her Bagrut. And then she went on and excelled. So you have to understand that, yeah, there are going to be failures. But just because somebody else failed doesn't mean that everyone's going to fail. And you're just as likely to be successful and also... There's no guarantee that you would have been successful in America. My kids could have been a mess in America. How many kids in America have drug problems and gang problems and all these different things? I had a Rebbe who worked with me and his son had an overdose and died. I mean, it, it, it happens in America too. So there's no guarantee that any of these kids would have been any better off. My kids too a T. Every single one of them, even the one that lives there, will tell you now that the move to Israel was the best thing that happened to them. Wow. It set up their life to be the best life that they could have. Every single one of them, even that one. Wait, why that one? Because he was able to be here. Uh, he lived here. He went to yeshiva here for two years after he got his GED. Because of the way it worked out, he was able to get into YU very young. He was a natural freshman. He was 18 years old. Okay. He wasn't, you know, and he had still learned two years. Most of his friends were older than him. He was successful. It set him up. He got a much broader uh, exposure to the world. He understands, he, you know, interacts with the world better. He's more successful because he's had this exposure and ability to grow. And he's faced challenges that he would never have faced had he grown up in the five towns. So he feels, you know, listen, it's tough. He's alone. You know, we don't see our granddaughter. My wife's going next month. It'll be over a year since we've seen her. I, I, I don't know when I'm going to go. Um, it's tough. There are things on the flip side. My parents saw my kids a couple times a year and talked to them maybe once a month on the phone. I see my grandchildren whenever I want because I got to pick up that little device and I say, yeah. hey, here's Zadie. And it's a terrific thing. So it's yeah. a different it's a different world. It's a much smaller world. Uh, and I think that's also when you have older kids, it's a much smaller world and there are avenues for success. You're only going to be as successful as a little, a bunch of luck. And a lot of hard work is going to make you. And if, if you're focused on a certain goal and you have to be flexible, I, my kids, I have six kids and every one of them is a different, really radically different politically, religiously, intellectually. They're just all over the place. And one of my daughters said to us uh, two, three months ago, 
how is it possible that these six people grew up in that house and were so different? And I said to her, because we didn't force anything on you. We let you make your decisions as you became adults. We let you choose for yourself and supported that, whether or not it's what we would have chosen. As long as it wasn't something irresponsible or bad or harmful, we let you be an adult and we encourage that because we thought that would make you a better person. And so far, Baruch Hashem, it's worked out for us. Uh, it, it, you know, some areas we're not so thrilled, but what can you do? Everybody's, my parents aren't so thrilled, you know, uh, with how I ended up because I, you know, why, why wasn't I the lawyer they wanted to be? So everybody always has something. So, you, you know, you, you have to be flexible, understand that you might not get a lawyer. You might get a garbage man. There's nothing wrong with being a garbage man. Somebody has to do it, and that guy's making money. So you know, you be flexible, and for you sure. you know, you you go with it. Wow. Yeah. No. For sure. Okay. So Shmuel, um, this is you know we don't have that many rapid fire questions, but I do want to ask you: Do you have a favorite pasuk or a favorite quote that helps you keep going when life gets hard? I always say Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. I had somebody who got offended by that once. And I, she came and quit, right? She quit. And I'm like, Baruch Hashem. And she complains. She went to, you know, one of the rabbis in Yeshiva I worked with. And he was, he was thankful that I quit. And the, he said, no, no. He says, Baruch Hashem and everything, because you just have to say whatever comes, whether it's something that you think is good or something you think is bad, everything's in his hands. Uh, my friend Arye, again, I go back to my Chabrusa, who I learn with every Friday and also on Shabbos and also again on Shabbos. Um, he, he and I have different outlooks on davening. He's a Balchua. He has in his sitter a page of personal requests that he makes of God. I want this. I want that. I want this. I want that. Because he feels a connection that way. I don't make personal requests as, as little as I can. Because when my wife was sick, she started her illness having double vision and a problem with reflexes. And it's still undiagnosed today what caused it. It took years before it went away and she still has certain balance issues. But if she hadn't gotten sick, they would never have found her cancer. And if they would never have found her cancer, she would have died. So the illness that we were davening for to save her, and that saved her life. And that taught me that God knows the world and what's best for us much better than anything we could possibly do. And so whenever anything comes my way, and I always say, just say, Baruch Hashem, God knows what's best for me. I'm trusting him. It's in his hands. He'll take care of me. So why didn't you become a rabbi? Why did you become a car mechanic? <laughs> studying. It was the studying part. <laughs> I I gave a I gave a, a drasha by my son's Zofrof, and someone's like, "Wow, where are you, a Rabbi?" Not a Rabbi, no. And I think rabbis the world over are yeah. saying to themselves, "Thank God, oh man." Um. Okay. So the last thing that I wanted to ask you is, do you have any you know thing that you want to share? You've shared a lot of wisdom, a lot of your life, and I'm so appreciative uh, every piece of it. But do you have any like last? message that you want to give to people it's the same thing i've said several times already get up in the morning put your pants on big boy pants get up face the day get through the day because tomorrow will come tomorrow will come it's always gonna come 
not for everybody. Someday people don't get to tomorrow, but most of us are going to get that tomorrow. And there's always a chance that things will be better. And in experience, almost everyone can say, yeah, eventually it did get better. Eventually I was able to, to cope. Eventually I was, and it's hard. No one said it isn't, but tomorrow will come. Just get yourself through the day because there's always tomorrow to make it better. Love it. Love it. Um, amazing. So if anybody wants to get in touch with you, can they get in touch with you? Sure. And my email is shmuel at catsfamily.co.il, S-H-M-U-E-L, at, uh, or what we say in Israel is strudel, which I love, um, uh, cats, K-A-T-Z, family, you know how to spell that, dot C-O dot I-L. That's the easiest way to get in touch with, you know, and I, I answer almost every email. Awesome. Awesome. Sounds great. Really, I feel like you're Rebbe in the, you know, in the truest sense in a lot of ways. So um, thank you for sharing your knowledge with us and your life experience. I'm going to tell you a story. When I was just out of Israel and I came back and I went to Camp Mosheva for a weekend with kids who were um, essentially like NCSY. It's a different program. Uh, not religious kids who were in Hebrew school. Uh, and they had a Shabbat for them. And I was on the Shabbat. And I was one of the leaders. And I was out of my mind, you know, crazy and having fun with them and playing games. And I cheated and, and outrageously, like, you know, and they loved me and I would teach them things and all this. And my third grade Rebbe was the head of the program. And he came to me that night at the end of the Shabbaton, Sunday night when we'd gotten back. And he said, Shmuel, if you don't go into education, you're wasting your life. I said, "Wow, Rabbi Schwartz, if I go into education, I will never make any money and I need to have money to have a life. And it stuck with me. And several years, I mean, we're, we're years uh, in my, in my early fifties, I now give that Friday Chabura and the Haftorah. I do the Dvar Halacha in, and I run the Hashkama Minya Maishol. I give a Chabura in Mishnayis uh, on Shabbos also. I also have my Chabrusas with both of my sons two nights a week. And I give a Chabura for Kohanim for my shul here one night a week. And I also used to do that in Reishi. I would go visit and teach there as well. And I sent the message to my, my third grade rabbi. I said, I want you to know it stuck with me that you always said that I should do that. And I kind of am doing it a little bit. I kind of am in it. Um, I don't regret not doing it, but I get it. I find that when I teach something, it helps me understand it better. Because inevitably I get asked the question and I'm like, well, I didn't think of it that way. Now I've got to figure out the answer. And that helps me understand the subject so much more. For sure. For sure. Thank you so much for coming on. And I look forward for the world to hear it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Anything But Traditional. I was really not surprised, but blown away by Shmuel Katz's story. Shmuel is a very interesting funny, talkative guy that I've gotten to know just because I bring my car to his shop, just because I bring my car to Auto King. I never thought that he'd be a podcast guest necessarily, but when I was thinking about people that are really anything but traditional, people that are out of the box, I was like, man, I gotta have Shmuel on. And I reached out and thank God he agreed. And um, I hope that you guys learned a little bit about people in our lives that maybe we wouldn't have tuned into. Um, maybe, you know, the secretaries or 
the businessmen or the, you know, cleaning people, garbage men. You know, there's a lot of different types of people that we interact with in our lives that maybe we don't get to hear their story, but maybe we should. And um, I'm grateful that Shmuel Katz let us in on his story, let us in on his life, and um, yeah, let's unpack it together. So definitely go over to Tell the Tomorrow on Instagram and let's talk more about it. Let's unpack this episode. Again, please share a review on Spotify Podcasts or Apple Podcasts. Um, a review, comments. Um, and if you want to sponsor an ad or a dedication or any of that, please reach out. You know where to find me. And um, I look forward to talking with you. Until next time, all the best. <laughs>